Good evening. You're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I am your host, uh, Troy Goodfellow. Uh, with me today, we have regular panelists from GamesBeat, Mr. Rowan Kaiser. Hello. And making his first appearance on Three Moves Ahead, uh, the biz dev running guy over at Critical Distance, uh, one of my favorite sites for tracking down interesting games writing, Z- Mr. Zach uh, Alexander. Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're glad to get to have you here because apparently you know a lot about what we're going to be talking about. Today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to go on a bit of a games history trip. We're going to try to analyze where a popular genre of the day has come from. The twists and turns leading there doing a bit of a games history genealogy. And uh, the topic we've chosen is... Uh, survival games, specifically the colony managers, the rim worlds of the world, the uh, that oxygen game whose name I forget, <laughs> oxygen, oxygen not included, uh, banished games like this, which uh, prioritize creating a community in a very hostile atmosphere. Uh, these games have become very popular in recent history and have. And it's taken a lot to actually get us here uh, from uh, the mid-80s to now. Now, Rowan, this was your idea, so we're going to start with you. Why did you think this would be a topic uh, worth exploring? Uh, I think that uh, this is one of the most fruitful current new subgenres. A lot of my favorite games of the past few years have come out of this, plus Dwarf Fortress, which I think is the progenitor of the current form of the genre. which about six or seven years ago I tried to get into. So I, I had a Dwarf Fortress phase, <laughs> though it's been a little while. I think um, we all have Dwarf Fortress phases. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, RimWorld uh, was one of my favorite games of the last few years. And uh, Oxygen Not Include is very promising. Paradox has gotten into the business with Surviving Mars coming out at some point soon. Um, I hope. Uh, <laughs> And uh, it seems like this is a genre that is kind of poised to explode, and I thought it was worth looking into sort of where it came from, what its traits are, uh, what the uh, what the games that kind of did what it's trying to do, uh, what those were, what those are, uh, and then like what the what the sort of soup that all those ingredients kind of meld into, cook into. Uh, simmer into? Simmer. Let's go with that. Blossom into. (laughs) (laughs) Soups don't blossom, Troy. You're making the wrong soups. Uh, (laughs) So, Zach, uh, tell us about your experience in this genre and what you think typifies a survival strategy game. When we talk about these games, what exactly do we mean? Uh, So, my experience is actually, these games make me a nervous wreck, and I try to stay (laughs) as far away from them as possible, but, you know, from a historical perspective, they're they're super interesting. They used to be really niche, and like Rowan said, they're starting to kind of blow up a bunch. Um, basically, to me, it, it's anything with, like, a health meter, you know? Something that's like you have this time pressure, this constant pressure that's driving you to go outwards and, like, try and do something. But it's also something that has a really strong, like, simulationist bent, you know? it's uh, The hunger meter is something that's like, let's simulate realism. And uh, a lot of that, even though there are some games that like were formally doing that stuff, like a lot of this stuff also comes from mods. There are a lot of mods for like Fallout and the Elder Scrolls that are like, food is a part of these games, but 
it's kind of like eat eight eight apple pies in order to like heal yourself when you're fighting a dragon. And a lot of these mods were like, well, what if we tried to make it more realistic? Uh, what if we tried to make like the ultimate sim game that simulates every aspect of human life, like right down to needing to eat and go to the bathroom and stuff like that? Um, so for me, it's yeah, it's it's right at that intersection of like simulationism and uh, also just kind of this intense time pressure that really stresses me out. Now, you mentioned modding food requirements into RPGs, and that's yeah. a very important point to make. Uh, and a lot of that came from, originally, the, the roguelike genre, mm -hmm. right? Uh, where you had, you know, NetHack and Angman and games like that required you to always be eating something. Or, uh, Ancient Domains of Mystery, I think, is probably one of my favorites. It's, you know, not random like most roguelikes at a certain level. It's a general overarching quest on a fixed field, though some of the dungeons are random. But there is this huge emphasis put on, well, if you're going to be chopping down that tree all day to build that bridge, you're going to need a lot of rations to do that. Right. Um, so you have to go and find that. So we have, and because uh, food is such an important part, feeding your colonists is an important part of the survival strategy genre. Can they eat? Will they eat? Do they like what they're eating? Um, for me, a lot of that goes back to the roguelikes. So at least that's where it started. Now, right. Rowan, you've you, you, Rowan, you've seen a lot of parallels between roguelikes and the survival strategy genre beyond the randomness of the setting, beyond the uh, the permadeath, and beyond the food. Do you talk about a little more of the connections between these two genres? Well, this is one of the most direct of the the kind of sub subgroups that I want to talk about because like you look at Dwarf Fortress and you just look at it it's a roguelike it's mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know the grass is a dot in a field of ASCII codes the uh, the dwarfs are letters the elephants are little e's you know they uh, all these things look exactly like the original rogue and nethack and all those um, that are just you know the ASCII symbols um, and the Dwarf Fortress also is not just uh, a strategy game. Dwarf Fortress also has a, an adventure mode or whatever it is where you go as a roguelike character and travel through, you know, the detritus of your failed Dwarf Fortresses. Uh, it's, it, so there's, there's a very direct line there into uh, what Dwarf Fortress is, uh, is trying to do, and it's sort of one of the ways you could phrase it is what if you are making a roguelike except there's a hundred people instead of one um and they all have their own little minds so there's kind of an aesthetic and creative connection there but i think the key one is that uh these are games that are about telling stories right it's not about the game telling you a story it's setting you up in a simulation in a set of systems that are going to collide in interesting ways uh so in a roguelike you know you have this food that we're talking about you might be running out of food and doing just fine in other ways but you're forced to take increasingly desperate risks to go and get food uh in a survival strategy game you might have a perfectly good colony that has no space for growing food uh and therefore, you know, you have to take risks in order to go and get that. And taking those risks means you're, you know, kind of creating a story that you're telling yourself. It's like, you know, uh, Captain Elf Hunter uh, 
had to raid the deepest dungeons before she was ready and she died. So you get this kind of losing based on risk, creating interesting stories. And I think this is uh, this is Zach's real stu- area of expertise here. He, he goes by a Zach like on Twitter. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I, the thing about Rogue that's so interesting and, and what you're talking about, Ron, with these systems and the stories intersecting is um, one of the biggest roguelikes, uh, NetHack, has these things called conducts. They're voluntary ways of playing the game that the game recognizes at the end of a run. So um, NetHack also has food in it, and one of the one of the conducts you can do is called foodless. So you actually have to. It's a challenge mode to play the game without food, and that includes like if you turn into a mind flayer and you eat brains, that disqualifies you. Um, I think that there's like uh, you can be a golem and you could eat rocks. And because that's what golems do, they eat rocks. And if you do that while transformed into a golem, like that disqualifies you. It has this whole system of transmutations and different properties and all this stuff and uh, all these different ways of disqualifying you for actually like eating food. Um, and actually, uh, I, I, food is one of my particular interests. Um, I run a Tumblr called gamesandfood.tumblr.com, which kind of looks at the different ways. Uh, food gives values in games like like I mentioned you know in in uh, NetHack or in Skyrim you know food has very different uh, flavors but like ways of working against the mechanics or with the mechanics um, even when you're strictly in, in just like the survivalist thing like a glass of water versus a glass of dirty irradiated water has different properties and so the game's trying to give you these messages with all these different options um you could sit down and cook an elaborate meal in dwarf fortress or you can just have your dwarves like eat raw berries straight out of a barrel and that has different uh impacts and, and different ways of interacting with all these things so yeah it's it's very heavily based onto all these different systems what values do different foods provide um, you know, what impacts do these different foods have on different parts of the system? So, yeah, I have a whole, like, aesthetic Tumblr about it. Um, I, could, I could spend the entire podcast episode just talking about food. Well, maybe we'll do a food show uh, sometime in the future. Well, it's, probably not, it's probably not coincidental that the survival strategy genre has blossomed or has become the healthy soup. Uh, <laughs> at the same time that roguelikes, roguelites... Roguelikes, roguelites, and uh, open-world survival games have all been very, very popular over the last uh, few years. So we have this whole, I think, rogue-based atmosphere. Uh, We have so many, I think of, um, you were talking about uh, the conducts in NetHack, Zach. I think of of, uh, one of our our friends, uh, Northern Lion, Ryan Letourneau, who plays a lot of Binding of Isaac. And it's always, this is going to be this kind of run or this other different kind of run. And there's these, uh, you set artificial limits on yourself or the game sets limits on you one way or the other. And that, to some extent, bleeds into some survival strategy games where you set the uh, conditions of the world you're going to be in. Uh, I think Clockwork Empires, uh, you know, which isn't not quite misbegotten, but a game that I think... uh, deserved better than it got at the end and i actually end up liking it more than most people do but it is a game where your where your your very choice of your initial settlement will severely constrain you in some very very important ways by temperature by available uh vegetation by what kind of animals are around you um 
And you can very easily, just from the opening uh, colony spot, set very hard challenges for yourself. And I think that many others uh, have this sort of these sorts of conduct type things. And you have these in other strategy games as well. I mean, Civilization has the one city challenge after all. I don't think it's necessarily unique uh, to roguelikes. Uh, But I do think that, you know, because of the variety and the randomness in roguelikes where you don't quite know what you're going to get, you know, you can get Excalibur and NetHack on the second level or you might not see a single grape until the seventh floor. (laughs) Uh, It's very, very mean that way. Um, I think there's a there's a business angle here that part of the reason that uh, the roguelikes and roguelites ha- now I did it um, roguelites. Uh, <laughs> it's a terrible. Who just say roguelite is a terrible word? Uh, the procedural death labyrinths have uh, <laughs> become increasingly popular. Are there's two main reasons. The first is digital distribution has made it easier to make smaller systems based games put them all around like you know if you were ever on a bbs in the early 90s or mid 80s or whatever you could download nethack for you know that uh, with those modems it might take five minutes but it's not a huge thing like the, these are games that are built around being easy to acquire and pick up and oh my god now i've been playing it for three years straight um but the rise of digital distribution has made games like spelunky which i think is the key game in the kind of roguelite resurgence uh that became a game that was able to be played on the biggest consoles as well as being developed on PC initially uh and then you have the streamers the rise of streaming has led towards games that are not straightforward narrative based but are based around like the streamers um sort of high wire act of being on the verge of dying or succeeding at any time like that's that's a really great streaming idea is that you don't know if things are about to collapse at any moment (laughs) right binding of isaac is a great game for that and then rimworld is a great game for that because it's all about you know one stray bullet kills your chef and now you're screwed uh but you could have a great colony going on up until then so there's a, a real uh a real business angle here towards why this genre has become increasingly important. Um, the streamers play these games. People like the streamers. They go and buy the games themselves. Suddenly it's a hit. Uh, yeah. And I think you see, you see I mean, one, one last thing is I think there's, there are a few games before this uh, kind of accessible Dwarf Fortress, which I think is one way to... <laughs> the, one of the aims of the survival strategy genre... But there are a few games that kind of came out before then that uh, are like half roguelikes, half strategy. Um, one of them is FTL, which is one of the best games of this decade, I would say. It's uh, uh, like if Star Trek Voyager was good, you know, you're, you're playing this <laughs> uh, busted ship in enemy space and trying to like rebuild it on the fly and get back home and warn of the great, uh, great invasion that's coming. And I, you know... I wouldn't necessarily put that in the same genre as Dwarf Fortress and Rimworld and so on immediately, but uh, it does have a lot of strategic decisions within a roguelike, everything could collapse at any moment frame, and I think that's part of what makes it such a special game. Uh, I have not played Sunless Sea yet, but I think it's got a similar kind of vibe. 
You should play Sunless Sea. It's really good. It, it was number one on my Steam wish list. I got it in the last sale. Just haven't clicked on it quite yet. Uh, now they have Sunless Skies coming out, right, or something like that. So what were you going to say, Zach? Uh, yeah, no, I was, was going to... Well, first off, I agree with you a ton about FTL. Um, it, it does have that, kind of that intense time pressure going on, which really pushes it towards um, more of a survival game. You know, you, you can't dilly-dally. You really have to get to the end. Um, but even... And for the business angle, you know, I, I think it's hard to talk about survival games these days without talking about Minecraft. Um, just because, so Minecraft didn't originally have a survival mode, but it was one of the first things that got added to it um, after its first public release. And that, I think, had a huge influence, you know. I mean, Minecraft alone launched the entire genre of open-world survival game with crafting, which is now, like, 90% of early access games. Um, and I, just to, I mean, so Splunky and Dwarf Fortress both came out in 2008. Uh, Minecraft started coming out in 2009, I think, was kind of the first release. And then they added Survival uh, later in the year. They were, I mean, Minecraft was being worked on super, super quickly. Um and so, you know, all these things were kind of coming together at the same time. Uh, so Dwarf Fortress, Splunky, Minecraft, um, Terraria got a boost from uh, Notch promoting it. And that was not as much as a survival game, I would say, but definitely open world sim with crafting. Uh, and so all of those things led to this immense pressure. I, I mentioned that, you know, simulation games were kind of a niche genre before. I mean, it's like one of the first one, not necessarily the first one, was this game called SOS, which was on the Super Nintendo. It's like you're on a sinking ship and need to get out. There was this um, thing, there's this uh, chain, what's it called? A uh, franchise called Survival Kids, published by Konami for Game Boy. And it's like, oh, you're trapped on an island. You need to get food and water and get off the island. Um, and then it, those were. Those were, I mean, very much survival games, but they were also super, super niche. I don't think uh, they got very much attention at all uh, when they first came out. It, again, it was a very small group of people who actually enjoyed this this kind of like, you can die at any time, you need to get a clean source of water, uh, you know, you need to be able to uh, deal with these very immense pressures. Um, so it, it did take a long time for that to morph into something more friendly, something more accessible. Uh, like you said, Dwarf Fortress, but accessible. Uh, you're skipping ahead a little bit, but we can do these next. <laughs> uh, we, go ahead. We have, we have a little bit of a plan, but uh, now it's all out the window. Um, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there, there have been like this, this sort of niche genre. Um, one of the most, I don't know about controversial games but one of the kind of most varied reaction games from the late 90s that i remember is jurassic park trespasser oh which, right uh i know a lot of critics immediately hate it because it looks like you know it's a jurassic park except you're you know doing a first person shooter you need to kill dinosaurs how cool is that except it's a survival game where you're you know trying to worry about your all of those health bars and whatever. Um, and I had never got quite got around to playing it, but every time I read about it, it sounds fascinating. It sounds like a game that was like 10 years too early. Um, there are also several like Robinson Crusoe inspired PC games early on yeah. uh, through yeah. the 80s and early 90s where I used to dive through abandoned wear sites that they were a pretty regular thing that were like just 
on the verge of connected to the things that I was really, I really like. So I would, you know, click on the next thing in the list and suddenly I'm on, you know, you have to make your own bandages. Uh, so yeah, this, this was kind of a niche thing that, uh, got bigger and bigger as someone actually figured out how to attach it to like a fun accessible game something like minecraft and then eventually uh the explosion of the kind of uh open world with crafting games of <laughs> all different sorts um one thing that i think as i was kind of putting this together i realized might have been a bit of an inspiration is the rise of the zombie and post-apocalyptic media of the 2000s. Um, mm -hmm. You take a look at something like The Walking Dead and uh, relatively early on in that series and in the comics, uh, the surviving group finds a prison and like they decide this prison is where we want to set up and try to survive the zombie apocalypse, right? So they have to, you know, worry about making sure the fences around the prison are working, start planting crops, figure out where everyone sleeps, clean out the zombies who are inside the prison, decide if the people in the prison that they have found are trustworthy or not because they're criminals and so on. And these are all strategic decisions that they're making. And it would be very easy to say, this would make a really good game. And this is these are the right. same sorts of decisions that you make when you're, you know, starting a RimWorld game or starting a Dwarf Fortress game. And it did make a really good game, Coco called her Rebuild. <laughs> I have not played that one, so we can we can move into that. But like when I was when I would be playing a random zombie game, I remember uh I think I played Dead Island, which was a okay zombie action game. Like one of the first things you do is survive the initial zombie hordes, and then you find uh you go and find a group of survivors who have holed up in a good uh defensible place. And uh, they start sending you on missions to do strategic things. Go find a car part so that now you can use this truck to get around. And these are things that would make a really interesting strategy game. So I could, I could see why someone would be playing games like this and say, you know, what if these are the decisions I'm making instead of just whether I'm beheading this zombie with a sword or an axe. Uh, right. And yeah. uh, I th so I think that there's this, this kind of impulse that goes along with that goes along with the mods that you're talking about and uh troy you mentioned a game that i haven't actually well, played so let's rebuild. You know, the, original re the original rebuild i think is like 2009 2010 and there's a, started on uncongregate started online uh yeah. and there's a now it's on mobile and it's also uh now they're up to rebuild three uh on steam rebuild three gangs of deadsville uh, made by Sarah Northway, uh, Northway Games. And the entire conceit is you are trying to build an outpost in the middle of a zombie apocalypse. You start with a few people and you slowly expand your base and try to survive the nights. Uh, who's going to be on guard duty? Who's going to level up with skills? Who's going to go on the food raid because you're running out of food? What do you do? Turn that neighborhood into a farm plot or do you fortify it? Um... Do you trust the science, the mad scientist to do your research? Because you have to do some research to get electricity up and going again, or this sort of thing. They're more goal-oriented. You have to get to a certain uh, destination, uh, generally, to liberate uh, your community and you know, get, get to the helipad, get to the, get, get to the chopper uh, sort of stuff. And it takes time to do that. And that is, you know, um, you know six, seven years ago yeah. that those games came out. And so those were, I think, I mean, they're... I think they're they're un, not 
forgotten because I still remember them. And I forget everything else. <laughs> um, but they're, they're uh, I think, missed as a bit of a landmark in the survival game. Now, there isn't the crafting. There isn't a whole lot of crafting involved, uh, which you do get in more proper survival games, like, like Don't Starve, for example, where here's some grass and sticks, make a fort. Uh, approach to, you know, the real survival uh, individual games. But it is, you know, clearly a a community survival game based on the zombie mythos, which started gaining a lot of popularity uh, 10, 15 years ago and has shown so far no signs of abating. Yeah, and I, I mean, I remember, you know, talking about games in, oh man, like 2008, 2009, and there were, there was a lot of demand for like, oh, you know, I love zombie movies, I really want to be like holed up in a mall and try and shoot zombies out, you know, I want to try and have that like survival against, you know, a massive overwhelming force. And it's hard to remember that there was a time when those games were not like being dumped out by the bucket load. Um, you know, it, it was a little unusual. Um, and I think a little bit of that was technological. It, it's hard to say like, hey, you know, here's 10,000 enemies. Um, but certainly there were some MUDs and stuff that, that tried really hard to make, um, to make that experience, you know, the, the overwhelming odds and, and survival in there. Um, and then actually uh, another game that's contemporary with Rebuild was Adam Zombie Smasher. And that was made by... Blendo games who did like quadrilateral quadrilateral cowboy um and adam zombie smasher was also kind of like a it's like a board game with real-time uh segments so you you picked a section to defend and then you were given limited resources like roadblocks or a sniper team uh it was randomly generated and then uh, you had to just kind of capture as many survivors as possible so it wasn't as much about surviving as it was trying to get survivors out it was just a really, really great game from a really great de- developer. Um, also kind of like contemporary. I feel like more about Adam Zombie Smasher. We talked about it uh, back in 2012 with Brendan Chung on episode 181. Oh, awesome. Atroya's on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that Adam Zombie Smasher is not a game I initially would have considered about for discussing this, but it's, it's also an interesting game in that it's... Uh, sort of realize you could do a small scale strategy game and have it be successful and interesting in a way that you couldn't have done 15 years ago, or it would have been a lot harder to get distributed and noticed. And I think it it was a pretty successful Steam game and uh, deserved to be. I liked it a lot. Uh, So... Now, I think the most obvious uh, origin of a lot of these games are the city builder genre. Uh, These are games where you you're generally tasked to build a community. You have to build houses and you have to give the build jobs or tasks. You have to find a way to fund the continued expansion of your community and whatever types of barter economy you end up cratering your uh, spaceship on or whatever, whatever. Uh, whether that currency is just something as simple as what is the oxygen exchange rate uh, in uh, oxygen not included, uh, how much oxygen, how much money, how much, how many resources should you waste just building oxygen stuff? Um, there's these, the impressions games are of course I think the most 
popular here. Uh, they're in the, certainly the longest lived series, and I think their biggest contribution to the survival series is the Walker system, something that a lot of um, city builders didn't have for the longest time. Things like SimCity, uh, it was all is one building in the zone of influence of another. And at a certain point, Impressions games started like that, and at a certain point they moved away from that, and you had to actually have uh, walkers be moved from place to place. They had to go to the market to get their goods, and the market had to be in range of a source for those goods to get there to begin with. So there is this chain of things that they picked up and moved. Now, it wasn't necessarily as rigid as the current uh, survival strategy games are. Uh, it did, you know, descend into math puzzle madness at a certain point, especially when you get to the higher, uh, go to the, the later games, um, uh, Empire of the Empire of the Metal Kingdom, I think, is one of the most notable of this. Um, and it don't even started with impressions because you had the, the Settlers games before that, mm-hmm. which were the... I think the first games that made moving resources along a line very, very important. You had to set up your roads in an intelligent way so that the stuff got dropped off at the right place since, you know, your workers only go so far. Um, And this is, I think, very important for the survival strategy genre because so much of it is can they get to what they need to get to before they have to go, go to bed? What can, how do you e- efficiently plan travel, whether it's through roadways in city builders or in survival strategy games? It's can they get there safely? Can they get there in a well-lit path? Um, do you want to go and get the far resources when it's light so you have more stuff when it's dark? But how where Where's the food because your farm's not ready yet? The whole walker system, I think, is essential to understanding how we get to uh, the survival strategy genre. Yeah, the the key difference between uh, the Impressions games and the Settlers and so on and SimCity is that uh, these decisions become much less abstract. In SimCity, it's, you know, are these things connected or not in a way that will make them abstractly do the things you want them to do? Will they create traffic if you put them in the wrong place? The traffic makes your city as a whole generally unhappier. Um, Whereas when you get to the games that are dealing with the actual individuals who are doing these things, who each have their own house, they each have their own path that they walk to work, they each have their own specific job, they each have their own specific happiness. So you could have some people who are really, really unhappy and ready to burn your city down because they don't have water on one side where everyone else in your city is super happy. So you you have this sort of unevenly distributed uh, strategic decision process. Uh, And they also do these things in predictable fashion, right? So they behave in the Impressions games, one of the things that you want to do, um, these are Caesar III, Pharaoh... Empire of the Middle Kingdom, which is the one that I didn't actually play because I heard it was uh, some of those things that you were talking about, Troy, and uh, Zeus, which was my favorite, although probably the simplest. Um, these these characters behave in exactly the same way, which is when they get on a road, they will walk up and down the road. When they get to a fork in the road, it'll be 50-50 which way they go. The houses that they pass 
are the things that their benefits go to. So you have an architect who stops these buildings from collapsing by making sure they're in decent shape. If your architect is constantly making the wrong decisions and going down roads the wrong way, then your buildings that he's not touching are going to collapse. Your um, bizarre saleswoman is not going to be delivering food. So you have to try to kind of build around the predictable decision-making process that these AI people have to make sure that they are predictable yeah. in a way that you can work with. And uh, this is this creates like all these different design ideas in the impressions game where you uh, one. I saw one suggestion that you try to build everything in a spiral where you have one road that's just starting <laughs> in the middle and getting bigger and bigger and going around. And I think that's, you know, dealing with the way that, uh, you know, these these agents, these walkers are making their decisions. And this is something that's very specific in the survival strategy genre. Oxygen Not Included, RimWorld, both have specific check marks for each of your people saying what you want them to do, what do you want them to not do. So if you have a character who is the best chef in the universe, you do not want her to be sweeping constantly so you you know manipulate exactly the the things that she's going to be doing so that she's going to be trying to be a chef she's not under your direct control but you are sort of hacking her decision making process with a simple and predictable ai yeah and the it's so interesting because the difference between that and SimCity is SimCity is just so much more opaque with the, you know, like like you said, you know, in Caesar, you know, you can see your citizens doing something, you can see their behaviors. In SimCity, there's just code behind the behind the scenes that says, you know, for example, your crime rate is just a function of how far you are from the city, and it's like multiplied by your land value or whatever the formula is. Uh, it's it's like a black box. You don't really understand it you don't really see the relationship it's much more hey this is just what we've decided is going to be driving our games and that logic has made a lot more um clear when you're watching people walk around when you're watching your dwarves you know neglect their mining because they're too busy engraving uh or something like that little bastards yeah <laughs> And it creates interesting interactions because these are these inter- these are these I keep saying interesting, but they, these systems are colliding in different ways. The the simple AI is running into you know the simple AI of a monster who's attacking, and this is what ends up helping to create the stories that are making the survival strategy games interesting. It's that uh, there we go again, uh, making them compelling. <laughs> there we go. Let's get out of the source. And- and they both, uh, and both genres, uh, really prioritize, and you see this a lot in Reddit, and just kind of, not that I read Reddit because I don't, but other people read Reddit and tell me, uh, and forums that I used to visit in the past about city builders is people pursuing the most efficient path. What mm-hmm. is the best way to set something up? What is the best way to organize your community in certain situations? And it's not always possible, especially in survival strategy games where your layout is where your, your landing situation is often random to begin with. But even within but within that you know procedurally generated start, there are ways you can set yourself up for an ideal situation, you know, and think of RimWorld in uh, when sh- how many solar panels should I build and when? Right. Uh, what do I do with my first ev- event encounter? When do I try to convert the guy I shot 
give him Stockholm Syndrome, and make him my bad guy. Um, do I build new buildings, or do I drill into mountains and when? If I only have small mountains, what do I do? There's always these, if, but they're, they're always prioritizing. Those aren't just strategies. They're strategies to prioritize efficiency of layout, efficiency of setup, which rooms should be where, how many people per room. I remember, you know, forum threads back on, you know, the CSER three days. This is what your most efficient city layout would look like. Uh, right. Here's how to solve this map. Um, here's how you get your buildings leveled up as quickly as possible. Uh, because in the early Caesar games, there were you could be up from a from plebeian to an aristocrat. Uh, they changed that in Caesar four and five, where there were different classes. But Caesar one, two, and three, you could level up your buildings uh, from poor to rich. And you want to do that as quickly as possible without affecting your tax money. So it's about efficiency of layout, but also making sure the resources get what they're supposed to get. And this is, you know, you see this in a lot of strategy games. What is the best way to do something, the best build order? We saw this Mm -hmm. in RTSs. We called it a build order. But build order is largely about, you know, how fast can you get something out to crush your enemy? How fast can you get to an army? It's sometimes about efficiency, but it's mostly about speed and what can you skip. In city builders, you often can't skip steps. You can't, you know, you can't not have the granary. You have to have the granary. But where do you put the granary? And in survival sims, it's how many people to a room? Where does where do they get electricity? How do they have fun? How do you reduce their stress? How do you increase their oxygen? All of these issues come to play. So the emphasis on efficiency in design, uh, I think, is it comes out of the impressions games. It doesn't come so much out of uh, my favorite of the heirs of uh, the impression games, Children of the Nile, which has a walker system where you everyone goes out and they collect the resources and they're very autonomous and they do what, they, what you want. And it's a very forgiving game. Uh, it's very you, it's a real, practically impossible to crater out uh, in Children of the Nile. I mean, even if things go bad, eventually the nobles will come back and they'll start over again because you've built them a really nice farm. Um, so it doesn't quite fit. But the other uh, Impressions games and other traditional city builders were so much about how little you could spend on as little, but as little, how little money you could spend on as little territory as proper as possible to get the best outcome. Because you might need that uh, other space for other things like walls or trading posts or what have you. Uh, another game that I think is. An interesting kind of diversion here is Majesty, which we can talk mm. about Majesty 1 without Troy getting in trouble, I think. Um, you can talk about Majesty as much as you want. <laughs> It'll make Fred happy regardless. Fred loves Majesty. Fred uh, is my CEO for people who are listening. Yeah, no. Paradox bought the, bought the rights to Majesty and published Majesty 2, or I'm not sure if they yeah. published it or they have published the rights it. to it now, but yes. Um, Majesty 1 came out in 2000 or 2001. Uh, and this was a game where uh, you were sort of the king of an RPG kingdom, and instead of like running your uh, running your kingdom as a city builder or controlling heroes of the RPG, you are building air uh, building your towns around basically supporting heroes who will defend your uh, castle and people from invading monsters. And uh, the key thing here is that you have indirect control over everything. So even though you might have, you know, 20 heroes running around, all you can do is say, hey, I'll give you a thousand gold if you kill, go kill this Cyclops or whatever. 
Yeah. Um, and there's there's this kind of interesting path that was not taken in following up on Majesty to create uh, a, a kind of subgenre of uh, indirect control over. Um, I don't know how I'd put it, less less mundane city building type of games. Um and but I think that there's this idea in Majesty that could have been twisted into a survival strategy game had that that thread been followed. And we might have something that's less based on Dwarf Fortress but accessible and more based on Majesty <laughs> but more difficult. Uh <laughs> Hey man, one dragon shows up to your castle and all your heroes are out fighting a monster den. Majesty got plenty of difficult back in the day. <laughs> True. Yeah, but it doesn't have the losing is fun idea. And I no, think it doesn't. That's, losing is bad. You don't want to lose. Yeah, uh, losing was very bad. Uh, and I actually talked with Fred a little bit about this at uh, Paradox Con was that if you want to reboot Majesty, make it a losing is fun game. Uh, so right. hopefully we'll see that in a couple of years from Paradox. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, another another game series that I think uh, I don't really remember the original Tropicos too much, uh, but Tropicos 3 and 4 and to a slightly lesser extent 5 were a lot more based around using time and space to build your tropical islands more. Uh, after Plague, the disaster that was SimCity 2012, uh, I went to Tropico 4 and like my people all had these spaces that they were in that they were traveling to and from in order to build the things where SimCity had totally abstracted this, pretended that it existed in order to give you traffic jams, but uh, they didn't have individual people with individual jobs. Tropico, I think, kind of maintained that idea uh, going around, had a lot of personality that occasionally was a little too much personality, but uh, <laughs> had an idea of moving beyond the mundane. And they were not losing as fun games, but they were they were very agent-centered games. Um, Right. I, I think that there's a big difference between, like, a god game, which, I mean, SimCity is essentially a god game. Like, a god game is traditionally something where it's like you sculpt terrain, you, like, need worshippers to gain power and stuff, but really it's just kind of any form of omnipotence. Like, even Dwarf Fortress is almost a god game because you have so much control over your environment. And Majesty was so interesting because it was like, well, what if what if this strategy game like wasn't a god game? What if you only had indirect control? And it's interesting because, unlike SimCity, where a city leader like can determine zoning single-handedly or change the tax code single-handedly, a lot of influence that you know our actual government governmental systems have tend to be uh, more indirect and and not as uh, direct action. So I, I get involved with, you know, neighborhood committees. And I, let me tell you, if a mayor tried changing the zoning in my town, which is happening right now, like people go nuts. There's just like no um, conception. Uh, there's no absolute power vested in like one person to change so much. And and to me, that's really interesting because God games are also a part of this heritage going into city builder games. Um, and, and the cities that it, it they create structures of power, um, you know, like, yeah, there are these ideal efficiency cities and how they look like kind of tells us about the kind of game that it is. Like if you try and make the most efficient sim city that there is, you end up with like a totalitarian police state uh, where everyone lives in like crushing poverty and the 
average life expectancy is 34. But if you try and make like the most efficient majesty uh, city that you can, you end up with this big prosperous city where all the heroes have the best armor and uh, you know they can kill dragons with ease. Um, it's the the priorities that games have when they're trying to set up these systems ends up telling us a lot about you know how the developers envision uh you know that what the end state of the game looks like uh i think law is an interesting idea here uh to do a, a quick aside uh i've been playing avon colony which we might do a show mm -hmm. on at some point when fraser gets back but uh it's a it's a new science fiction city builder where you're colonizing a lush alien planet um and you're building well, these... so, some of it is lush yeah, uh, you're building a uh, on a life-filled alien planet. It is not. It's not like a surviving Mars or one of the other games, which are probably worth talking about because uh, there are a few interesting alternatives there as well. Um, anyway, Avid Colony is a fairly typical city builder with a nice science fiction theme, um, but it's kind of halfway divided between this agent system and a SimCity style system. There are agents that are just really hard to see and they're not really that relevant. Uh, but one of the interesting things that it has is you're building these cities of a couple hundred people, up to a thousand is the biggest one I've done yet. Uh, and these are people who have gotten on a colony ship and are going to a new world with the express idea of, you know, taking humanity to a new place in the stars and it still has a crime system and the crime system is just it exists there is crime and you build a building that will go and fix it and it makes no sense like 200 people you need drone policemen to <laughs> stop their shopping malls um but yeah the idea of law is really interesting here and this is something that we talked about uh with city skylines and probably other city builder shows is that uh the amount of power that you are given over these kinds of things does creates like interesting strategic decisions in terms of in terms of city skylines. It's traffic. That's that's where if you're making bad decisions, things go wrong. Uh, but in reality, in Seattle, in San Francisco, in all these places where you're trying to figure out what has gone wrong with uh, exploding housing prices and so on. The issue is laws and trying to work around them. People who are trying to work around them to do bad things, people trying to work around them to do good things. Uh, you know, San Francisco is like one-third historical buildings. This makes building for density incredibly difficult. Uh, and these are not things that are really um, uh, built into games right now. Uh, it's survival strategy games, as you just called them earlier, Troy. They're colonization games in many ways. These are places that exist outside of laws. They don't want to have those. If one of your RimWorld people goes and kills another one, you decide what they're going to do. You decide if you're going to throw them in prison and sell them to slavers. You decide if you're going to have everyone beat them to death. Uh, there's not and a law that says this person is has a way to be dealt with. And the, the fact that you know, survival strategy games are, you know, colonization games, and I like Colony Builder as a pretty good uh, term myself, it, it gets away from one of the problems you have with City Builder, Joe, and I think it's you, that you're always starting your new city from scratch. Yeah. That you're building a modern city not on, you know, a historic—the city skylines, you're building a modern city in the middle of nowhere, in right. virgin land, something that is— 
makes little it makes it makes sense as a game but makes little sense as far as you know getting you into this is a city with history i mean you you can build historic architecture in some city builders but you know it's just disneyland right i mean this building looks like oh it's an ancient japanese temple no it's not i just plopped it down beside something <laughs> like mcdonald's i mean it's not an ancient anything uh but these games they are about you know carving uh a place in the wilderness and they are about uh you know in some of them make making your making your making your own laws i do find it funny in avon colony that you know as you say you know, these 200 people these adventurers but they gotta have a shopping mall <laughs> they, gotta have, they, they gotta have a bar and grill you know they gotta have uh, all this all the comforts of home they gotta you have know. their drugs Come on, guys. They gotta, gotta well the drugs i understand considering <laughs> how horrible some of these sites are um <clears throat> but they are you know very different uh places and they are about i mean uh i think for, I mean, clockwork empires is largely about um in the personnel we get to the personality bits in a bit but it's about how to who do you punish? Who do you encourage? Who do you give the best homes to? Who gets the resources and why? And there's not there's, there's not going to be a just allocation, and there's going to be some extra judicial murder. Um, <laughs> and then, what do you tell? Uh, and but there you have to answer to somebody in Clockwork Empire, which I think makes it a little bit different. You do have to answer to the people that sent the colonial company out. They're going to start expecting things. And you have to eventually build civilization out of this wildness. Um, the wildness can't continue forever. Um, but it does, you know, start with, you know, the what do I need? When do I need it? When can I look the other way? There is kind of a, a libertarian paradise idea here, yeah, which might sure. be why the best of these games is made by a gamer gator. Um <sighs> I, I love RimWorld, but man, is it, that's a problem. Uh, but uh, I think there's a lot of promise in the games that are either trying to subvert this or the games that are trying to uh, add those extra things. Like Clockwork Empires is a game that I was really looking forward to until I actually played it. Uh, and maybe, you know, final versions are, are in better shape and I will enjoy that a lot more. But um, it, changed, it changed a lot. Yeah, through its entire history. It was, it was amazing how many major changes they went, went um, through. Oxygen Not Included is still kind of a libertarian paradise, but it's a hellhole. And it's specifically a hellhole. You don't even know why your characters are there. They're like clones that are being sent through a portal in order to... <laughs> it, they're, they're not even real people, right? They're just... Yeah, it's it's very strange. But it's very clear that this is not a place that anyone wants to be, and they're just trying to make do. It's kind of a prison, maybe? I don't know. Uh Rimworld is a little bit of that. You're trying to get away, but getting away is more the end point. Like, if you build a nice colony there, why would you want to get away? It's just kind of a goal to yeah. have at the end. Where Oxygen Not Included makes it, does a fairly good job, and this is why I think it's one of the most promising of this genre, uh, making it clear that this is just trying to get by in what is a very, very bad place. Uh, Oxygen not, it, the big problem is that it's fairly easy with Oxygen Not Included once you kind of get a grasp of its systems to uh, have a stable situation, not add more characters, and just say, I, all right, I've, I've, got, I've come to an endpoint here. Um, and it's relatively new, although it has not updated in like four months, which is odd. But uh, it's, a, it's a game with a lot of promise. 
it needs just a few more things to for us to do a full show on it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I think we're we've uh, we've kind of moved on towards the next of our uh, of our key traits, which is uh, relationship building games. I think the very best of the survival strategy games are the ones that include a strong relationship component where your agents are not just agents, but they're actual characters who have personalities that you're interested in, whose stories you are interested in. And this is why I think Rimworld is currently the best of these, uh, because it has the strongest kind of relationship aspect to it. And a lot of this comes out of the Sims. Uh, and there's, there's a whole, a whole sort of, not necessarily subgenre, but a whole drive towards modeling interesting relationships in games. And I think The Sims is one of the kind of key ones. As I was putting together the idea for this show and thinking about The Sims, I realized when I got The Sims 1 and started playing it, I had the most fun playing it as a survival strategy game. I would, <laughs> I would build a house with eight people, um, and when you started in The Sims 1 with eight people, you did not have enough money to actually build a house with enough space to put in a kitchen, a bathroom, and individual rooms for each person, even enough beds for each people. Uh, so you had to basically walk this really fine line of keeping them alive, keeping them happy, keeping them friends with one another for long enough while some of them could go get jobs, and eventually they could build their own rooms. But even still, The Sims, like, the idea of you have eight or however many personalities in a room and making sure that they're each happy with themselves and each happy with each other is one of the things that makes for really interesting survival strategy games. And I think the, the sort of way that various games have tried to deal with this and uh, succeeded or not is a fairly interesting one for the development. I think for all of its success and major sales, I still think Sims is the most understudied major AAA game uh, in probably history. I think we have probably have more essays about you know Call of Duty and Metal Gear Solid and all these narrative games. But I think Sims, the Sims is it's so so important uh, in understanding strategy games, and understanding RPGs, and understanding survival Sims. Uh, I remember my ex-wife; she built one of these commune. Uh, buildings with, you know, I think five different couples living in the same house. And this was before Big Brother. So I <laughs> don't know where she got the idea. And, you know, it was, you know, you'd have the arty professor types and you'd have the hip skateboarding kids. And then there'd be some babies and not everyone liked babies, not everyone liked noise. And just watching them, just watching them go. And Sims is interesting because you always have the option as a player to intervene, to stop players stop your sims from doing things uh, to direct them. Now, they, sometimes they'll have more free will than others, and this is more pronounced in some versions of the game than others. Um, and once they introduced you know, more supernatural elements, it became even more of a dollhouse type thing. Let's see what happens if this happens instead of personalities interacting with their traits, which I think happened more in the older sims. Uh, but I do think this is, you know, a game of such consequence uh, that the fact there hasn't been like a major book written about, you know, The Sims as everything uh, is kind of kind of surprising. Um, I don't have time to write it, so somebody else can. You can uh, write a blog post of twenty five thousand words about how there should be this book. Yeah, exactly. Again, <laughs> I, don't get me started on the blog post I haven't published yet. My drafts folder is insane. Um, I, I think that you know the 
personality part is the why people like The Sims. They like to, a lot of people start their Sims by, I'm going to make me and my boyfriend, girlfriend, and we're going to see what we're like as Sims, and then they're disappointed by the results. I think everybody does that at least once. Um, and I think that's kind of, kind of funny, and it kind of shows, I think, the type of stuff we like to see in our games when we have characters. We like to see people, characters with traits, characters with personality. You, know, you look at your named characters in, you know, look, I mean, if you think look at city builders, um, even if there were named characters, then they had jobs. That's all they had. They were just jobs. They just represented their job and nothing else. Uh, they they might have had wants and desires, but their wants and desires were entirely tied to either what their job was or where they were living. And that was pretty much it. Uh, there was no sense of an internal dimension to th that these were actually people who had desires that these desires might clash. I think Sims is one of the first games to really deal with this uh, in an interesting and important way where you could step in and, you know, poke people to do stuff. But generally, a lot of people like just, just let stuff happen. Just watch the soap opera, watch Big Brother happen in front of you and see what and see how your house fits. Uh, can you hit? Can you reach a stasis? Um, is your person happy in that job? Now, I remember when Sims came out, there's a lot of there was more criticism of the game came out, I think, than there is now. I mean, criticism was in critiques of the game, not criticism as, oh, this is a bad game. Talking about what is this message about, you know, consumers? Is this a consumerist game? This is a game that just privileges, you know, rising up that ladder. And it, that's certainly a part of it because you know, all the better stuff that makes your life easier is means, you know, getting a better job and you know, spending more money. But that eventually runs out. Eventually, you cannot get more things. And unless you, you know, want to go through all the magic items, which, you know, don't feel real and feel like a cheat to a lot of people, there's a certain point where you have to live with the people you're living with. And all the stresses that comes with that, uh, the affairs that pop up, the unwanted children, uh, death, um, and I think this is, I think Sims is, it's a landmark game that is serving of more study and I think is pro probably the first to really give characters that you manipulated true personalities that interacted with other characters on their own. Right, the, the systems-based personalities, because yes. you're, you're getting into RPGs of this era is when they really start trying to focus on your party members a lot more. Um, and this is a somewhat accidental. Uh, I always like to talk about how you know Bioware invented the idea of personality-based characters in the Western RPGs in their modern form with Baldur's Gate because they wanted everyone to play multiplayer. They knew some people were going to play single player and said, "All right, we'll create some characters for the single player." Suddenly, those become the reason that people are playing the game, and Bioware, you know, stopped making the multiplayer games ended up create, having these characters uh, kind of do these, be the reason that people are trying to play and trying to starting to create systems around them. So 10 years later, you get into Dragon Age and every, every single conversational choice you make, these characters are responding to and saying, you know, they approve or disapprove, or the game is telling you whether they do this or not. Um, so there's this real urge in 
gaming across the past several years that is partially manifesting in the survival strategy genre of trying to create these systems-based uh, ways of making relationships work. And Bioware took a lot of criticism for those the, those kind of mid-era games for like their romances being uh, be nice to a person until they have sex with you. Uh, because yeah. they have you this You mean that incredible- doesn't work? <laughs> because they have this incredibly simple system of you know say the things that you know they'll like and eventually the romance will happen yeah. uh so it, it's a system that's not quite working but these experiments are there and uh zach since you're always telling me to play dwarf fortress <laughs> um, i don't really remember how relationships work in that one Oh, uh, they they keep on they keep on getting expanded. Um, so if I mean if if The Sims is like, hey, here's one or two personality traits, like every dwarf in Dwarf Fortress, and you can end up with fifty or a hundred. They all have their own personality traits, their own quirks, their own likes, dislikes. It's it's almost too much um, to to get any meaning out of. It's it's the opposite problem where it's hard to to just pay attention to one or two dwarves because it's all going on. So basically every dwarf has um, a series of likes and dislikes and that shows up in multiple ways. It shows up in what meals will make them happy. It shows up in what materials will give them more happiness. If one of those dwarves ever becomes a noble, it can determine what sort of things the noble will ban or what sort of things the noble will ask for. Uh, and you know, if if you don't fulfill those requirements, your noble gets angry. And there's this thing called a shame sp- or a, a, a temper tantrum spiral, where basically, uh, if your one of your dwarves gets angry enough, he does something, pisses off another dwarf, that dwarf gets mad, and all of a sudden, your your entire fortress is full of rampaging dwarves. So. It's <laughs> yeah, it's exactly like Twitter, actually. Uh, Tarn Adams invented Twitter in 2008. <laughs> uh, so. You know, you you can end up in situations where it's like, oh, this mayor really likes doors and uh, hates ballista, so he will forbid me from exporting doors and uh, wants me to build doors and doesn't want me to, you know, build any ballista parts. So that's a good noble, and then a bad noble might love uh, adamantium and say, make me an adamantium chest, and adamantium's the rarest mineral possible, so you'll probably want to kill that noble before it gets too out of hand. Um so, but dwarves will also socialize with each other as an activity when they're standing around. They can, some dwarves like socializing, it makes them happy. Some dwarves don't. Dwarves will have relationships with each other. Dwarves will have relationships with their gods where they'll be unhappy if they don't get to worship. Um, and this is every single dwarf has a different set of preferences. It's, it's basically impossible to keep, keep track of in any meaningful sense. Um, but it's definitely, you know, that kind of fine level detail. Uh, and this is part of the reason that I think Rimworld is sort of the peak of the genre right now is that you have a colony of six to twelve people. Um, if that's healthy, you start with three usually, depending on your which game setting you're going with, uh, and it's easy to keep track of their personalities. You know right. who these people are. Um, you know how they interact. You know who they hate. Like I had one game where I had a character who was. Uh, basically like the slave ninja they show up i recruit them and they are utterly incapable of any level of socialization all they know how to do is kill people they (laughs) even to the point where like they just run into a different character and kill them 
uh, because they, you know, got bumped into the wrong way or whatever. They they had a an unpleasant interaction, lashed out, instant death. Um, so I ended up because this character was so good at killing and I getting invaded so often. I wanted to keep them around, but I ended up building them a house and a little food storage place, like way far away from everybody else. They couldn't work. They couldn't do anything except do the murder. But they were so good at that that I had to keep them around. Um, <laughs> And so th- this is this is the sort of story that you know Rimworld has, and you know uh, it took some criticism for like intentionally not doing some stories, particularly around the uh, queer women, um, that uh, can be modded out and probably should be to make bisexuality exist within the game and so on. Um, but it's it's got these systems that generally work and they're systems that create characters who have characterization and end up creating the stories that you want to get out of the game um that's that's really important another game that i think uh that troy will have to recuse himself for that's important is uh crusader kings 2 um this is this came out around the time that the survival strategy games were starting to get big. And what Crusader Kings 2 did was it had very complex relation. Well, it's not a very complex relationship. It had a lot of different angles that a relationship system could exist within. But they were all fairly transparent. Um, it takes place in the Middle Ages, so they have you know, seven virtues and seven vices. If pe- someone has the virtue that's opposed to a vice, then those people will dislike each other. And this is a, you know, they can still like each other more for other reasons, but they have all these different things that are going on to it. And based on these very transparent uh, personality traits and interactions, you would get interesting stories built out of Crusader Kings. Uh, and something like Rimworld has a very similar thing, where the, the personality traits that oppose one another will make these characters consistently dislike each other. And it's not that they're, you know, dukes battling it out over France. They're, you know, your cook and your farmer might hate each other because one of them is depressive and the other one is optimistic. And it just kind of slowly spirals out of control and you have to figure out if this is a thing that you want to deal with. So I think that this is somewhat similar, the, re- the way the relationship systems work is somewhat similar to the what we were talking about with the, uh, the predictable agents in um, the city builders, is that because you can see these things, because they're transparent, you kind of know what's going on, but you don't have direct control over them, so you have to sort of hack and manipulate in order to make them not go get out of control or do get out of control if that's what you feel like doing at that point. Sometimes you'll like the chaos. Uh, so we have these uh, four different uh, ingredients in Rowan's survival soup. We have um, <laughs> the beginning of you know, roguelikes at the beginning. We have, you know, survival games. We have the city builders and we have the relationship games. And these all come together to form uh, this popular new sub, not necessarily new subgenre, but the subgenre that is growing in popularity and in innovation. I guess the question comes now is, you know, where do we go from here? Where does the genre go from here? We've seen, I think I agree with you, Rowan, that RimWorld is still at this point the, uh, that's the target for most, yeah, that, that's, that's the, the zenith. That's where we're at right now. It is the best of the games. It is the most 
the most transparent, the easiest to get into, in many ways, you know, the most compelling, uh, still very challenging. It has an end game that you can choose to ignore if you like. It has caves full of murder aliens. It has all of the things that people like uh, in survival strategy games. But we still have, there are you know, more of these, and every day, I, th I think every month, we're going to see more and more of these come out. I guess the question is, is there any, where should the subgenre go in your opinion? What is the next step? What is the next system that should be brought into these? I don't, I think that, you know, I, I mean, generally I'm kind of happy with them staying at this level. I don't need a grand strategy world built on top of it. I just need, just give me my colony. But for you guys, where do you, where do you, would you like to see, or where do you think the in, in the existing systems, the most room there is for innovation and change. Um, one of the things that I realized as I was sort of putting together this list and thinking about what goes into the survival strategy genre is that all of these games are not just single player, but they're aggressively single player. There's not a multiplayer way to do them. Uh, We've talked about Civilization a bunch where I, and I think you guys at least partially agree with me, am just really tired of the race, where you have eight Civilizations start at exactly the same point, and they're racing towards similar endpoints. And whoever gets ahead is, you know, ahead in winning. And I find that increasingly uninteresting. It makes for a good multiplayer conception. Like, civil, even if Civilization is played single player, you could see how it would easily be multiplayer, and eventually it became a multiplayer game. Um, these games, you, can't, you could maybe see a co-op mode, but if you have, like, Dwarf Fortress multiplayer where two different people are playing two different fortresses that go to war with one another, that just destroys the game. Like, you don't recover from a full-on dwarf war, uh, <laughs> not with the not with the way those systems would exist. You could maybe do a cooperative dwarf fortress, and that might be a really interesting idea. But it's still player versus environment. Um, so, what I would like to see from the genre is less uh, the genre itself and more the idea of this player versus environment. Uh, going into different directions, going into grand strategy games, um, like a, a civilization-style game where it's not about you racing the Indians and the French. It's about you surviving in a harsh world. Uh, a city-building game that is not necessarily about building the neatest city you can, but trying to survive and connect multiple different communities across an harsh universe. Um, uh, I'm, I'm also somewhat sick of the kind of Star Trek style uh, 4X space games, but I would be really interested in a game that takes the idea that the uh, difficulty of colonizing space is going to mean that you only have a few different little cities planets, whatever, that you have to invest huge amounts of resources in in order to get them at all viable and trying to figure out like the economic decisions that are being made there in a player versus environment idea where the, your systems interact in ways that can spiral out of control like a survival strategy game. So I, I would just like to see the, the um, 
difficult player versus environment losing is fun idea spread beyond simply wanting to do an accessible dwarf fortress and into uh different ideas yeah so for me i think there's kind of like three things i think where Dwarf Fortress is going is Dwarf Fortress is going to keep on adding systems in there. Like the way they, they generate their development is they just tell each other stories and then think about what are the components that make up that story? How do we get there? So like their fighting system came up because they told the story about two gladiators in a ring and one gets, you know, the sun in his eyes and the other like throws mud at him and uses the opportunity to attack. Uh, and so they're going to, you know, they've been adding magic in, they've been adding trade between civilizations in, they're adding all these different things in there. And that's great. But as we were talking about with RimWorld, you know, at some point you have to start winnowing down to the stories that you want to tell. Because if you tell just a million stories all at once, it's going to get lost in the noise. So I think uh, as we increase the level of simulations, we're also going to have to increase kind of the filter uh, to make sure that the right stories are coming down to us and we're telling the most interesting stories we can within the context of what we're generating. And then what I want to see is actually, I want to I start seeing this stuff come to mobile. Um, I, I've been struggling for a really long time to find something that is uh, accessible on the phone. I know like Don't Starve is kind of on the phone, but I want to see these ideas, like Rowan said, spread, but instead of spreading to multiplayer, I want to see them spread to mobile games and stuff like that. I started playing this game called Idle Realm, which is like a city builder, but uh, also an idle game, so you wait for your resources to generate. Um, it's very primitive, and I'd love to see people take these ideas and run with it and start meshing stuff into what we can do on a phone versus on a PC. Um, what one game that I was disappointed with and probably could have mentioned on the list, uh, Fallout Shelter is a super oh, yeah. accessible game. It's really good looking, easy to play on computer, on tablet. I'm not sure if it works that well on the phone. but It works uh, pretty well. Right, I, I played it on my iPad, and that was a game that could have been a legit difficult strategy game, but instead turned into a monetization device yeah. where the only, the only progress you could make was via random missions that would be given to you once a day, or you could buy the st rewards that you would get from them directly, which just destroyed any interest I had. But the core um, structure of that game was such that like that could have been a legit tough survive in the wasteland build your vault up game uh with a really accessible cute interface yeah that uh ended up being a massive disappointment but the idea is is solid and it, it's somewhat in oxygen not included but oxygen not included is uh, significantly more complex to would not transfer to mobile immediately it might be possible troy I think everything is fine just the way it is. <laughs> no, I mean, one of my concerns, as always, is that, you know, we, the, I wouldn't like to see, like, for example, RimWorld become Dwarf Fortress, which was already foreboding uh, to a lot of people and has never really lost that uh, aspect. And then they just add things that, like, do we need poetry? <laughs> I mean, yes yes we do, do, we, do is this something that people were really looking for uh, i mean i love real poetry but you know how much dwarf poetry 
do I really need? It's, it's, it gets down to the, you're, you're, instead of simulating a survival, instead of simulating the challenge, you're simulating a world, which, you know, might give you a little more of an insight into little, um, whatever the dwarf's names are, Gimli or Blorfin or whatever. Maybe <laughs> he's got a really rich haiku life going on, but it's not something that, I'm necessarily interested in. Now, maybe that's just me, uh, but it does get to the point where you design to lose focus. And I don't want the, something like RimWorld to lose focus of what it is. I would like to see, uh, you know, maybe it would be nice if there was another level. You get to a certain point and they so see your Avon Colony, which is a city builder, <laughs> not a survival game, but a game like Avon Colony. And you get, you know, your colonists up like 25 or 50 colonists and it's running well. But now you need a hierarchy. Now you need a boss. Now somebody's got to actually run things. So you have that, you have a more of a political element uh, going on inside with you as well, manipulating things as, you know, God up above. But also, you know, power plays uh, within the system. Um, if it's a colony, you know, you're going to have to have, you know, the buck's got to stop somewhere. And, you know, it'd be nice to have see what would happen if the personalities clashed with their responsibilities beyond, you know, poke a guy to go skin an ostrich. Yeah, I, I think that the the legal aspect, the sort of building up a society uh, would be an interesting direction to go in, especially for the ones that have larger communities. Uh, RimWorld, you don't necessarily need to have anything beyond the harsh frontier justice because there are relatively few characters. Um, whereas uh, a Dwarf Fortress, you know, you have those nobles who are making those decisions. Did those turn into, you know, interesting new stories to tell at an advanced level? Um, but I think that for the games that are at a larger scale, um, something like surviving mars this might fit um banished could have gone in this direction to create a, a more interesting end game um but have an idea that now that your people are relatively set up they're going to divide into factions and want to start murdering each other how do we deal with that uh, uh there are interesting directions to go in but creating a social history uh is one of the, I don't know, one of my sort of holy grails of game design that I'm not sure anyone is quite doing yet. And I would love to see that be tackled in a really significant fashion that works too. That would be nice. <laughs> I was with you. I was, Dwarf Fortress is working on kind of like a social history, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, you can end up with a civilization that's founded from like, a dwarf who was kidnapped as a child by the goblin and then you know that that kidnapped dwarf leads an army and crushes his former community and establishes himself as the ruler you know but it's <laughs> it's not surfaced really you know you have to go digging through the histories to find that um i legit just saw that star trek episode the other night <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one i think the Talarians capture a human baby and bring him back, and he's on the Enterprise until they send him back to Earth. Or... Yeah, that, it, it has a surprising ending where uh, it's not just that uh, classical liberalism is the key to everything, which is, is nice. <laughs> <laughs> it was a, it was a good night. It's always a good night when you have Mediterranean food and Star Trek. So, so I think we're done here. Any last comments? Any last thoughts? Um. 
these games are pretty good. I'm excited about them. And yeah. I uh, need these games to stop coming out so that I can have time to actually go back and play all of them that have come out. I've decided I never have time, which is why I only play games for the podcast or for work. I hardly any play. <laughs> I hardly play any for fun uh, anymore. Uh, so thank you for listening. Uh, on behalf of everybody, uh, reminder that we are God. I don't know Rob Spiel. I should have had that all printed out. Three Moves Ahead is produced by Michael Hermes and can be found on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you like what you've listened to, you can support Three Moves Ahead on Patreon. Uh, we appreciate your donations. We have a number of targets, and your money goes towards very good causes like keeping our many freelance panelists um, funded. Uh, you can donate at patreon.com slash 3MA or listen to the podcast at threemovesahead.net and you can have a list of all of the episodes we've ever done. Um, I'm Troy Goodfellow, and on behalf of Rowan and Zach, have a good night.